to praise God. Born to praise God. You and I were born to praise the Lord. We were born for praise. And I want to begin a new message this morning. And I think this morning I'll just give you some background um, to help set up your mind and prepare you for what's coming concerning some messages and some teaching on praise. Um, but uh, I, I've selected that title because I really couldn't think of anything that more perfectly addresses, I think, what this series is going to convey. The fact that you and I, we were born with a lot of capabilities, but we were born designed, fashioned, remade by new birth to be to the praise of His glory. And Psalm 33, 1 says, Shout for joy to the Lord, O you righteous. And the Bible puts an exclamation point there. So the psalmist was shouting when he said this. He was praising God when he wrote this down. And so he said, Shout for joy to the Lord, O you righteous. And the next part is the part that I really want us to focus in on. He says, For praise, and the King James uses the word comely, C-O-M-E-L-Y. It's an old English word. We don't use it too much anymore. Praise is comely for the upright. Another translation says praise befits. Or another translation says praise is suitable or praise is appropriate. But in the original Hebrew word, that's translated comely, appropriate, suitable, is the root word that means to be at home. Think of yourself at home. You're relaxed. You are sitting with uh, your favorite food and your favorite relaxation clothes and your favorite relaxation chair, and you're just free to be yourself. You're at home. And that's a wonderful place to be. Um, but the Bible says praise is being at home with God. Praise is where the upright or the righteous feel at home in the Lord. And um, so this whole series is about being at home with God and how that we were born to praise. And so this morning, I just want to look a little bit at, at what it means to be at home with God. What is the Bible trying to tell us about praising God? First of all, as I said, we were made to praise God. We were designed to praise God. There, is a, there are a few verses in the opening chapter of Ephesians that bring this out. I'm going to read them and just point out a couple of words to you. Um, Paul writes, God predestined us to be adopted as sons and daughters through Jesus Christ according to the purpose of His will to the praise of His glorious grace. And he goes on a little further and says, In Him we've obtained an inheritance, having been, here's that word again, predestined, so that we who were the first to hope in Christ might, and here's the repeating of that phrase again, that we might be to the praise of His glory. So Paul combines a couple thoughts. One is, that God had a purpose when He made us. This purpose was predestined before we were ever created. 
and that that destination involves praising God. So let me just put it together for you. We were designed, God had in mind, that we should praise the Lord, that we should exist as a praise to God so that not only is our life a praise to God's glory, but that we should be actively praising Him. So humankind was originally designed and predestined to be to the praise of God's glory in a way that none of the angels were designed. We were designed to be to the praise of His glory. And although the angels and the creatures in heaven, when you read in Daniel and the book of Revelation, you get those little glimpses into heaven, you see that there's all these magnificent beings that God's created in there, worshiping. But you and I were created to praise Him in a way that they can't praise Him. And we want to look at that this morning. Because at the end of this message, I want to encourage you to praise the Lord. I want to encourage you not only to occasionally praise the Lord, but to practice as a life's practice every day of your life, praising the Lord. And I want you to understand why praising God is so important. In fact, you get as much, if not more, out of praising God than God gets. And it is more for our created destiny that we praise the Lord than that God needs to hear more. Hallelujah. The Lord is wonderful. Wonderful is He. Amen. So um, we see in these scriptures about He has destined or predestined us uh, to be to the praise or to praise His glory that there is a living spiritual connection between praise and the glory of God. Let me say that again. There is a living spiritual connection between praising God and God's glory, and it leads into His presence. Hallelujah. So this praise-glory connection is actually a capacity to connect with God that's embedded into the human original design. And when people are born again and the Holy Spirit comes into their life and they are experienced being reborn, that rebirth awakens and ignites and opens that capacity to connect with God through praise. So I want you to think about that, that there is a, a gift, if you will, that God built into us when He designed us. And that gift is that praise-glory connectivity. And in this computer age, we, most of us anyway, all understand connectivity. You can have these fantastic, cool devices that are capable of fabulous things, but if they're not connected, nothing happens. You know what happens when you go into a, a, a place and uh, if you don't have cellular service in your device, you're dependent on Wi-Fi. So you've got to have that, that Wi-Fi active so that you can connect and pull down all that, those fabulous memes from, from Facebook and enhance your life and, and your personality by, by endless hours of watching YouTube and scrolling through a facelift book. You know... Facebook is now for old people, it's not for young people, so I've decided to change it to facelift book. So at any rate, all right, um, 
So when people are born again, the Spirit of God rushes in and awakens the capacity to connect with Him through praise. So let me tell you, if the devil fights anything in your life, he fights you praising God. You can go to church, pay your tithes, you can think about Jesus, you can call someone on the phone and please pray for me. But whatever you do, don't praise God. Don't actually open your mouth and start giving Him praise. Don't drop to your knees at attention before God. Lift up your hands and begin to say, Lord, you put the life in living. I just praise and worship you, Jesus, for opening the heavens over me today and begin to take all that wonderful stuff that you've learned and express it out before God in praise. Whatever you do, don't do that. So the devil fights you praising God. You're either too cool to praise God, too distracted to praise God, too depressed to praise God. Your trials are too heavy to praise God. Or maybe you're too spiritual to praise God. I don't need to praise God. God and I just got it going on on some kind of a metaphysical level, whatever it might be. So let's talk for a minute about origins and environments. Because if we're going to have a discussion about the power of praise, we have to think about origin and we have to think about environment. And this will click in your mind in a moment as I go on. In God's order of creation, He first makes environment suitable to sustain creatures. Then He creates the creature within the environment. So if you've ever studied um, creation, you've ever studied that first chapter of Genesis, first and second chapter, you'll notice First, God creates the environment. Then, in the environment, He creates the creatures and brings them forth from within that environment. Just to give an example, in Genesis 1, 20 through 24, it says, And God said. So, God's means of creation is speaking. He, the Bible says we understand that the worlds were framed or built through God speaking by the Word of God, it tells us in Hebrews 10. So here in Genesis 1, we see that. We see it uh, recorded that God said, let the waters, see he's already created the waters, let the waters swarm with swarms of living creatures. Then down a few verses later, he says, let the earth bring forth living creatures according to their kinds. Now, how God made the fish to be created in the waters and swarm. I don't know. And how God made the cattle and the dogs and the cats and the giraffes and the bugs and all the creeping things and the creatures upon the earth, how he made them out of the earth, I don't know. But it says he did. It says he spoke to the earth and said, bring forth creatures. So he spoke to the and the earth brought forth these earthly creatures. And this is why animals and creatures are simply bound to the earth. They think only of their immediate environment and their life moment to moment in the earth. They don't have lofty spiritual ideals. They're not moral thinkers. They're not considering eternity. There's no spiritual component to animals. I don't want to break anybody's heart. Um, you know, they are fortunate that we impose our love upon them and we anthropomorphize them and, and, and we create them uh, in our image and likeness. We make them our children and welcome them into our beds and such. But the fact of the matter is they were, they were made out of the earth, out of the environment of earth. So you kind of, you see that, don't you? Uh, 
But with man, with man it's different. The Bible says in Genesis 1.26, Then God said, so here you see God speaking again. He's talking. And God is now about to speak to the environment out of which He is going to bring man. And the Bible says, God said, let us make man in our image and after our likeness. Did you see that? God spoke to the earth when making animals, but He spoke to Himself when making mankind. God did not bring us forth out of the earth. Now, I know you're thinking of God rolling up Adam out of the dust of the earth. We'll get to that in a moment. But first, God makes sure that in His Word we see that God didn't speak to the earth. He spoke to Himself. Let us make man in our image and likeness. Then, you guys are sharp. All bunch of theologians here today. So we have to go there in Genesis 2-7. The Lord formed the man from the soil of the ground. And then, now listen, and breathed into his nostrils the breath of life. That's the Holy Spirit. God doesn't have two spirits. His breath is his spirit. God breathed into that rolled up man, that body. That was just simply a body at that point. Breathed into his nostrils the breath of life. And the Bible says, and man became a living being. So God hand makes the body, rolls it up from the earth. But He brings forth man's being from within Himself. Do you see that? We came from God. That's why Jesus quotes the last verse of Obadiah. When the disciples come to Him and they, they want to stone Him and they say, How dare you claim to be the Son of God? And Jesus looks at them and he says, well, in your own scriptures there in Obadiah, have you never read that the Lord refers to you as God's, plural, small g? When he quotes it, he's quoting Obadiah who said, and God's, or Savior's, shall come up onto Mount Zion. There's not a lot said in the Bible about this because as you can see, the tendency in, in, in the devil's deceptions that he has tossed out into the earth in the form of false religions, he's diverted man from the truth of the almighty, only true wise God into these concepts of, uh, of uh, multi-membered Godheads and that we are all gods. But the truth is, the devil has never created an original thought or idea. He simply takes the truth and then just rearranges it. And those arrangements, whatever they are, are always rearrangements based on one thing. He leaves God out of it. Everything else is fine. Just leave God out of it. So the fact of the matter is that there is a divine connection in man. We didn't come from the dust. We came from God. 
Our being comes from God. In fact, Ezekiel said when man dies, the spirit goes back to God. Who gave it? Your shih tzu does not return to God. Who gave it? The Lord did not breathe the breath of life into your terrier. Wonderful as it may be. I, I have my Sally, my Irish setter. I'm hoping that the Lord's got her up there, but I know that if he does, it's not because she had the breath of life in her. She was animated from the earth. But, you know, God, the Lord, I'm sure, life comes from him, so all life came from God in some way or another. But ours is unique and different. We are made in the image and likeness That is why, unlike animals, there is a moral component. Man's struggles through the 6,000 years of human history have always been spiritual and moral struggles. You know, regardless of whatever our wars have been and the corruptions, all of those wars and all of those corruptions and crimes and and, uh, falterings are always moral and spiritual at the root and in nature. We are moral, spiritual creatures and we're always trying to get back to the garden. Amen? So, God forms the body but puts our being in us out of His own spirit. But we don't end there. The very next verse in Genesis 2 says, And the Lord God planted a garden. The Lord God planted a garden. Let me say it again. The Lord God planted a garden. Did you know that, uh, that Adam did not plant the garden of Eden? The Lord God planted a garden. God personally did something beyond what he did in creation. He did something special, something unique. Whatever the garden that was in the land of Eden, the Bible says there was a land called Eden and describes it bound by these rivers. So you can locate the basic area on the map. But somewhere in that land called Eden, the Lord made a garden. Now personally, as I try to think about it and I study it out, I think that it was a quasi-spiritual slash physical location. There was something supernatural about it because when Adam and Eve were expelled out of the garden, God created a spiritual portal that closed, that he stationed angels at so that it could not be re-entered. Now, I am sure that ever since the days of the Crusades and even before, people have gone on journeys and quests to find the garden. But you can't find it. It is a physical place on the earth that had spiritual properties to it, and it has been closed off. It can't be seen any longer is what I'm trying to say to you. Wherever it was, there's probably just grass or dust or sand of some nature. But the Bible says God planted a garden eastward in Eden. And there he put the man whom he had formed. So I want you to see God's personal involvement in placing man in an environment that had been created for him. As best we can distill down what we know about the garden, we come up with this. 
whatever it was, whatever was there, it was a place where God's own presence and man could live together. The garden was a place designed for everything that man needs and everything that God needs to be together in that perfect union for which he had created us. I love the fact that there was work to be done, for example. There was purpose. Since we were made in the image and likeness of God, God gave Adam a tremendous project. He said, this area, whatever this area is, he said, uh, it's yours. Now, I'm here with you, but because you're like me, you're my son, um, I have given you qualities that I have, qualities to manage and qualities to expand and to rule over things. And so we see Adam giving names to all of the animals, and we see God saying to him, this is your place, expand it. Now, had the garden project been God's absolute perfect will that that would be what man would be, it would have been expanded till the globe was the garden. The whole globe was the garden. It would have been expanded that way. But God had a greater plan that necessitated Adam finding out about choices and about good and evil, and then after falling and separating from God, coming back and choosing to want to praise God anyway. To, to have him, choosing him out of the darkness is better than having God and never knowing the darkness. So, okay, that's a kind of a heady thought, but we throw that out there. The, the fact is, God makes this place, and it's a place for God and man to commune together, and it's a place where Adam, literally every day of his life, every breath he draws, everything he says, is a praise to God. He is being praise and glory to God. When, when the angels, when the, more importantly, when the devil, when Lucifer, who fell, looks in the garden and sees man, he sees the shout of God's glory. Man exists as the shout of the glory of God. I mean, you just cannot look at man and not see the radiance, the effulgence, there's that word again, Millie, of God's awesome qualities and character. Hallelujah. Man is literally the embodiment of the shout of glory. <laughs> so, um, God himself plants it, and the Bible says, God personally inserts man into the garden. Now, I don't think there's a thing in the Bible that isn't there for a reason. So the fact that God didn't wake Adam up, breathe the breath of life into him, and when Adam stands up, goes, <coughs> oh, wow, I feel my being. Thank you, God. God says, look, I want you to go over there about three miles down the road. You'll find the entrance to this garden I've made. I want you to go there. See, garden isn't a place Adam goes to on his own. God has to put him in it. Oh, hallelujah. You, you missed an opportunity to shout. God, God has to put him in it, which means it is a spiritual place. He is placed by God in that communal relationship, in that environment, that context. Hallelujah. 
When you and I are born again, God's placed us back in that location where we can have 24-7 communion and fellowship with God. Uh, hello, everybody. The garden's been a little quiet lately. I'm hearing crickets in the garden, people. Are you listening to me? We ought to be shouting the glory of God. That's what Paul was trying to say in Ephesians 1. Oh, that we would be to the praise of His glory. That every time they see the church gathered, like when we had look up. I mean, uh, you know, it, it might have seemed worldly and uh, very, very natural. But thank God we put a couple stages up and just had people just one right after another shouting glory, praising God, singing His praises. Every time God's people are moving, praise ought to be going forth. Can you say amen? amen. Now, every creature, because I said I wanted to talk about origins and I wanted to talk about environment. So we've talked about origins and touched on environment. But one of the things about environment you need to understand is that every environment God created has created to sustain perfectly the life that he put in it. So God had the creatures in mind when he made the seas and when he made the land. And uh, so environment is essential for the function of living things. If you want to see what malfunction and breakdown looks like, take a creature out of its environment and you'll notice that most malfunction and breakdown in life is a result of people in the wrong environment. Amen. So you can just cogitate on that for a minute. Um, God is the environment of man's creation. Man don't walk right outside of God. Man don't talk right outside of God. Man don't think right. Outside, outside of God, man, you ever seen, you know, when your car needs an alignment, if one wheel locks up the other, and he just goes in circles. And that's what mankind's been doing for 6,000 years, just going in circles and thinking that we're going somewhere, and we just keep right back at the same place we started from. We're not getting anywhere. It's called breakdown. It's called malfunction because you can't function outside of the environment God created you to be in. We are spirit beings designed by and for the presence and the love of God. We ought to be praising God, hallelujah, and being in His presence. We were created as God's show and tell. Now, I don't know if they do show and tell anymore today, but when I was a kid, I always looked forward to show and tell. Once a week, we'd have show and tell, and you could come to school, and you could bring some item, something in, and... Show it to the class and tell the class and talk to the class about it. It was usually something you were proud of. Obviously, you're not going to bring in, uh, you know, look at this wart I got last week or whatever. So, um, you never know. Some people were a little strange. Um, so, we were created to praise or to be the show and tell of God. We were uh, created to show and tell of his truth and his moral excellence. You see, praise is us talking to God spirit to spirit. Mind to mind, moral to moral. That's why when our mind is wrong, when our moral position is wrong, we don't sync up, we don't connect with God. And when, when that's going on in your life, you 
shrink away from praise. You, you have a hard time praising God. But when you feel that moral clarity because you've repented, because you all fall down and, and, and make mistakes. I do. We all do. And so I thank God for the gift of repentance. I thank God that I can lift my hands and say, oh, thank you for the blood. Thank you that you're working with me. Thank you, Lord, that grace is a continual do-over. Not that I'm out there sinning that grace may abound, Paul said, but I thank God that while I'm pursuing and following the Lamb, I stumble sometimes, but I don't allow the devil to keep me down. Glory to God. So thank you, Lord, for picking me up. And so that sense of I am right before God, I'm following Jesus, that, that frees me to praise Him, to come into His presence and to worship and, and to declare His moral excellence. <clears throat> when we're in our glory, we praise God. John, uh, in John, John records Jesus saying it like this to the woman at the well in Samaria. God, John says to the woman, is spirit. And the people who worship him must worship him in spirit and in truth. So when we were created and we were in the garden and we were communing with God, um, we were like him morally. And we were like him in that we were spirit. And so we commune spirit to spirit. Praise is a spiritual practice. It is a moral practice. And so Jesus was saying to the woman who was saying, well, where is the right religious facility? And it's amazing that 2,000 years later, we've had that scripture where Jesus said, true worshipers worship in spirit and truth for 2,000 years. And for 2,000 years, we keep reinforcing our structures of religion and we have not yet embraced the simple word Jesus said to the woman of Samaria. Worship in spirit and in truth. If you worship in spirit and truth, you can bypass all that other stuff. Or at least you can go through it not depending on it to create your connection with God, but just simply using it as a facility to, to magnify the Lord. You shouldn't be coming to church to get connected with God, is what I'm trying to say. You want the connection, it's within you to be connected. Praise Him and worship Him. I used to love it when Paul and Kim uh, would, would come every week, and of course they've moved, they're up in uh, Virginia, but Paul and Kim would come every week and they would share about how on the way to church, they'd put that praise and worship music on, playing in the car. And they would sing and praise all the way to church. So that's why when they'd come through the doors, they couldn't figure out why everybody wasn't just jumping in and praising God. And if you know Paul and Kim, you know that, um, that they're just like every other couple. You can get in that car on Sunday morning together and the last person you want to praise with. <laughs> you know what I'm saying? So they're just like everybody else. But they rose above that. Yeah. Praise brought them together in the glory and the presence of God. Hallelujah. So the Bible says we worship in spirit. So praise and worship is a spiritual exercise. It is the exercise of your spirit. 
Now, I said something about malfunction and breakdown, and it occurs when you remove a creature, any creature, from the environment that God made for it. You know, you might laugh and think this is a silly example, but anything removed from its environment will not work. You can't remove a boat from the water and drag it down the street and expect it to act like a boat should act. The Geico commercial is my favorite commercial. I love that commercial where George Washington is standing in his boat with his men and they're dragging it across the Delaware Turnpike instead of the Delaware River. I love that commercial. I just laugh. You know, how, re how childish am I that I laugh every time it comes on? Every single, I just laugh. Come here, honey, you've got to see this. I just think it's hysterical. But in, in all, of the, uh, in all of, of the humor of the thing, it shows how ridiculous to try to continue to force something to function when the problem is you've got it in the wrong environment. It is never going to function in that environment. You know, the very moment that you pull a plant out of the ground, it begins to die. It may stay alive for a while, but it will. It starts dying at that moment. If you don't get it back into the dirt, see, the plant was designed to live in that dirt. Take it out of the dirt. It will not live. Um, and it is the exact same thing that God said to man, the minute you rebel against me, you reject me, you let the devil lie to you, and you act out based on the devil's lie, sin is going to enter into you. And in the original Hebrew text where God issued the warning, he really said, in the day that you eat of the tree, I know in the King James it says, you shall die. In other translations, you shall die. But the term shall die literally means you shall become mortal. And, and when you look at the original Hebrew words and look up the definition, it literally changes the phrase into, in the day that you eat of the tree, dying, you will begin to die. Death sets in, and God in his mercy allows that death to be a long one. Sometimes 60, 70, 80 years. But it eventually is going to come. Death will come to all. It is the consequence of separation from God. You see, the reason why people are mortal is because we were created immortal in the garden, in the presence of God. God breathed into us a spirit that cannot be extinguished. The spirit of life that was breathed into us cannot be made to end. Are you listening? Yes. Cannot be made to end. And so, and so it is that sin expels us from the presence of God. And the result of that expulsion, if you will, from the presence of God, being separated from, the, we immediately begin to die. That potency in our spirit lasts for a long time, but it eventually the battery runs dead. And that body returns to the dust. And the eternal spirit God puts it, it goes back to God who gave it. Hopefully it'll take your soul, your personality, your character, your awareness, who you are, with it, and you will be with the Lord forever, reunited with Him. Hallelujah. That's why the Bible says that we are born again through Jesus Christ. Somebody say, praise the Lord. Praise the Lord. 
So man's drugged by sin from the presence of God. And ever since we see in 6,000 years of human history, mankind gropes along the darkness, sensing that something is wrong, probing for the truth. All of these great schools and institutions and, and, uh, and, and institutions of science and of theology and of philosophy, they are groping in a dark world, probing reality, such as it is, to try to find the truth. What is the truth? Pilate says to Jesus, what is truth? There are many people like I was before I became a Christian as an existentialist, I thought all searching for truth was idiotic and a moronic waste of time. Party, eat, drink, click up your heels, have a good time, tomorrow we die. And that was my philosophy in life. So some people take that philosophy. But whatever it is, people are groping, trying to find truth, trying to find meaning in reality. We look at reality and the circumstances such as they are, and we are in a prison of darkness, separated. We don't understand who we are. We don't understand what we are. We don't understand where we came from or why we exist. And out of that lack of understanding come ridiculous and absurd idiotic ideas like, uh, um, you know, uh, a spark turned into a frog and that turned into a person. And that became you. And so the reality is that all of those things are the, are the imaginations of a darkened, fallen mind. A spirit that's groping, a spirit that's paralyzed. In unsaved people, that capacity to praise has been shut down and broken. But when you're born again, the Holy Spirit comes in. And when the Holy Spirit comes back into your life, your spirit is goes from one quarter to full. Your spirit is born again. And you become now big. You know how big you become? I honestly think that if Adam was 5 foot 11, he was a lot bigger than that when he walked around the garden. Because the glory of God shone. You could feel him coming before he went, came around the corner. You, you could see him in the spirit before he physically showed up. His spirit was his clothing. The Bible says they were naked and not ashamed. Why was that? They were clothed in the glory and in the spirit of God. Now that's some pretty thick anointing. When you can't, there was no sense of shame. You know, one of the messages that are going to be coming in coming weeks talks about the uh, net effect of the fall being inhibition. The first casualty, the first casualty of sin was the uninhibited nature of man. Immediately shame. So the point is that that spiritual death has left man groping for reality and truth. And I'd like to direct your attention as we kind of come down to a close here. Psalm, and this is my first approach to the field. We're circling the field for a landing with this message. This is my first approach. I may make two or three, but this is the first. Psalm 137, 1 through 4. I love this psalm. You don't hear it quoted very often, but uh, 
it is uh, written by the exiles, the Jewish exiles who are in Babylon, who've been taken captive, and they're, they're about six, seven hundred miles east of, of Jerusalem from where they were <clears throat> captured and taken and made basically subjects of the Babylonian Empire. And they are writing this about their captivity. Listen to what they're saying and make the spiritual analogy for mankind and our removal from God's presence. They wrote this. Beside the rivers of Babylon, we sat and wept as we thought of Jerusalem. We put away our harps, hanging them on the branches of poplar trees. For our captors demanded a song from us. Our tormentors insisted on a joyful hymn, saying, Sing us one of those songs of Jerusalem. But how can we sing the songs of the Lord while in a pagan land? Listen to the cry. How can we sing the songs of the Lord in a strange, King James interprets it, land? In other words, we have been removed from our environment. We can't praise God outside of our environment. Praise is something that takes place in the glory and in the presence of God. We can't come up with a song. We can't sing those songs. So we hung up our instruments. And you know, many of God's people who are saved and born again, they're no longer in exile. There's no need to hang up your guitar or whatever it is that, that you play. It, there's no reason to be silent. You ought to be praising God. You ought to be opening your mouth and giving Him praise and giving Him glory. But why don't you? You feel like an exile. And the reason you do is because right outside your front door and sometimes right within your house is Babylon, is the fallen world. We are walking as the embassies of heaven in a fallen world. And that fallen world has its impact on us and imposes the sense of exile for, sin, for sinners who have fallen upon God's people, and they feel it also. And so we oftentimes fall silent because we are more identified with the exiles of sin than we are identified with the praisers of the glory of God. Are you listening? You know, if there's one value to that weekly gathering on Sunday in church, it's to remind people of what I've just said. If there's anything that ought to be going on in church, that ought to be happening in church every single week. Waking up God's people. Sometimes you need to shake them a little bit and say, whoa, 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 hey, wake up. You're born again. You are a spirit alive person. God has made you to be morally compatible and spiritually compatible with Him again. So get up and praise Him. Hallelujah. Glory to God. If you can get people to begin to praise the Lord, they'll connect with the glory of God. Can you say praise the Lord? So, okay. Uh, I'm going to come in with my final approach. <laughs> praise is a, uh, it's a portable tent of God's presence while living in a land of exile. 
You can take it anywhere with you. As a matter of fact, Paul and Silas at midnight chained to a Philippian jail wall, whipped out the tent, opened it up, got inside it, and began to praise the Lord. At midnight. And the Bible says the glory of God began to shake the jail. Before it was all over with, the jailer and his whole family got saved. They begin to praise God, and the praise becomes a portable tent of the glory and presence of God. Listen to me. If you and I would take praise wherever we go, we'd see God show up. Now, let me say it again. Unfold the tent. Open the tent. Get the tent open, and then do in the tent what you're supposed to do. Praise the Lord. Worship the Lord. You know, just imagine you're in aisle seven at Walmart and you just feel the praise coming on. Now you are feeling the exile. You're feeling how can we sing the song of the Lord in Walmart? How can we do that? How can we praise God in Walmart? I know I feel that way. You feel it. It's a heavy, dense feeling. But you have a right no, no, no. You have an obligation. You have a calling. You are recreated in Jesus Christ to praise Him. So aisle seven in Walmart, bust out the tent and begin to praise the Lord. You say, what if they think I'm crazy? Well, finally someone got it right concerning you. Hallelujah. Good. At least you're crazy for Jesus. Someone will think I'm a fool. Well, at least I'm a fool for Christ. The point is, if we want to see the glory of God come, get the tent out. Somebody say amen. amen. You know, you can believe in Jesus without experiencing His presence, but praise is relational. Praise is communal. Praise brings us into His presence. Praise is the embedded gift of God into your spirit. The reborn spirit is awakened and made ready to connect with God in praise. Hallelujah. So, our opening verse said, Shout for joy in the Lord, you righteous, for praise is being at home with God for the upright. Hallelujah. Somebody say amen. amen. Praise is functioning in our created design as the image and likeness of God. And it produces fulfillment in us. I'm going to close with this thought. When we praise the Lord, we are acting as the image and likeness of God. We are fulfilling our created design. We saw that back in Genesis, the first book of the Bible. Well, when you go all the way to the end of the Bible, to the book of Revelation, you go almost to the last chapter. Go to chapter 19. Go to chapter 17. There's a couple places in there. You see an image of Jesus returning with the armies of heaven, with us, with his people. Hallelujah. Returning to the earth. And the Bible says there is written upon him, Lord of lords, King of of kings. Now I used to, everybody says, Lord, I praise you. You are Lord of lords, King of kings. 
And in my mind, maybe not you, but in my mind, I always thought it meant, well, of all the kings that have reigned upon the earth, of all the lords that have walked the earth, Jesus is above them all. So he's the Lord above lords, the king above kings. But that really isn't what the Bible says. It says he is a king of a kingdom filled with kings. And he is the Lord, the Lord of a family that is filled with lords. He is the king of kings. He is the Lord of lords. So when you worship and praise the Lord and you reflect His glory and His goodness, shouting praise to God, guess what He's doing? He is reflecting that very glory back onto you. You are having God reflect into your life everything you are praising Him about. He is alive. God puts the life in you. He is peace. He puts the peace in you. He is righteous. He puts the righteousness in you. Whatever it is about God that you're worshiping and lifting up, He is Lord. He says, yes, and I'm making you lords. He is the King of glory, and I'm making you kings of glory. Listen, don't shrink back from believing it. When you read what Jesus said about eternity... Well done, good and faithful servant. Here's ten cities to rule over. Lord of lords, king of kings. The kings of the earth are always afraid of their subjects. Always worried that someone's going to knock them out of power. Always needing to keep them in place, keep them in check. They might be a benevolent dictator, but that's the way the kings and the lords of the earth are. But not our king. Our king is not the least bit insecure. Our Lord is not the least bit insecure because his relationship with us, glory to God, it's like we sang years ago, his banner over me is love. His kingdom's ruled by love, ruled by agape. Hallelujah. None of us would ever have any kind of a desire to ever usurp our king. He's not afraid. He's not worried. He elevates and lifts you and I up to that status of ruling and reigning with Him. Can you say amen? amen. So let's praise Him. Hallelujah. Glory to God. Come on, stand to your feet. Give the Lord some praise this morning. Go ahead. The Bible says, clap your hands, all you people. And it says, shout unto God with a voice of triumph. Praise the Lord. 